And we're live. Hello, Purgers, Discovery of Witch fans, Harry Potter people, Thronies, Handmaid's Tale people, <laughs> Hunger Games people. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Hello, His Dark Materials fans. It's so great to have you. We are starting our seventh show, His Dark Materials. This is Marcy's Porn, but we are the pop theologians. <laughs> we are so glad that you joined us for this podcast, this episode. Um, so who are the pop culture theologians, you may ask? Who are we, John? Who are we? Well, we are two rampantly vocal and belligerently <laughs> loud the, uh, theologians and academics who worship at the altar of pop culture, which is why we've done all of those shows. And we break it down through an academic, gendered, religious, class, race, lens, you name it, we're going to talk about it. So we are here. We are so excited to break <laughs> down the show. I was about to say, like, we are here, we are queer, and we don't care who knows it. <laughs> we don't care who knows it. So make sure you're following us on social media, at Pop Theologians. Um, Marcy, where can we find you on Twitter? So you can find me at Twitter, at I am the men who can. Um, we have done seven shows, so I'm hoping this isn't your first ever tune in. But if it is, welcome. Uh, we're so excited to have you. Um, I am the men who can is my favorite line from Wonder Woman. Uh, so you can find me on Twitter. I am on pretty much all day. Uh, let's talk. Like, Hit me up with your theories on the show if it's your first time running through the material. Or if you love this material the way John and I do, Like, talk to us. Like, Tell us what you think. Tell us what you think. Where can um, we find you on Twitter? You can, you can find me at jerickson85. Your Hotmail account, pretty much. <laughs> My AOL account, yeah. So I am basic. Um, so basic. And we are just super excited. If you have, like just ventured onto our podcast like go back and listen to our recaps of these other shows movies that we've really broken down they're quite fun to say yes and you can find um all of our stuff including actually technically eight shoes eight shows if you include westworld which we broke down on our host website engage gaze in written blog form um you can also find our podcast sister podcast on engaged gays called the bible bitches they break down the bible like the sassy bitches that they are um so we decided to switch it up a little bit for his dark materials um john mentioned this is my porn um which is a mom that's a great way to put it <laughs> but um i do specialize actually in children's literature uh i have presented at harry potter conferences my master's was on religion and children's literature um i have taught his dark materials uh to students uh so this really is something that i love and when i was like you know how do we start off this podcast, usually, um, if you're listening to our concurrent podcast for The Purge right now, you know that we tend to start off with our three what the fucks of the week and cover political shit that's going on. Uh, by the way, we are foul mouth. This is not a podcast for children. Hello, children. If you joined but us. Is his part, dark materials really for children? We'll right, right. It. It's time to go to your room. Uh, but I would agree his dark materials is and is not for children, which is what makes children's literature so great, which is why we decided instead of a like, what the fuck of the week, um, we would actually do our like three recommendations of children's lit that have 
adult themes in them, which by the way, is going to be all of them because children's literature is where humanity explores its existence first and foremost. And um, if you're thinking like, what? That is like a very weird thing to say. I would like you to think about how Chronicles of Narnia and you know, The Hobbit, Harry Potter, um, have shaped the way that generations have looked at the world. So, so we're going to start off with like our like books of the week. Um, and John, why don't we start off with yours? What, what is your recommendation for this week? So my recommendation is my favorite book. It's like the book I can always remember about like when I think about what my favorite book is. And that is from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. I was obsessed with this book as a kid. The author is E.L. Conansberg. Um, I'm probably saying that wrong. Um, but I remember devouring this book as a kid and reading it over and over and over again. Um, the quick synopsis is two kids who end up living at the Natural History Museum in uh, New York. And they're and have the best fucking time and have the best fucking time having adventures. I used to like, honest to God, pretend my brother and I were doing that. And like that, like we would survive on like the cafeteria food and like ride the like skeletons of T-Rexes. And it's just a great, great book. That's such a good recommendation. Um, and as an adult, like it's just, it's beautifully written. It's a quick read and it's, um, it's great. So I think it's like one of the best ones that like really can spark people off in like this adventure of reading right and when you're a kid so there's like these principles to children's lit that are required for children's lit to work well um particularly kind of from a fantasy and or adventure um perspective and like one of the first things is that you've got to lose your parents right and so for all of you who are like oh wait is that why Disney has no parents? Yes, of course that's why Disney has no parents. Because with a parent, you cannot have an adventure. And I don't mean that in like a mean way, but like, honest to God, like you like you need to remove the parental barriers for children to explore. Um, so sorry to Lily and James, uh, but Harry didn't need you <laughs> uh, around. Or did he? Or did he? Or Harry could have really used you. It would have changed his life, but he would never have had the adventures in life that he lived with there. Um, never would have. Right. Then again, he wouldn't have survived it without Hermione. But um. But yeah. So mixed up files is one of the first books I remember of like orphan kids, kids alone. So great, great suggestion. So our second suggestion of the week. Um, Folks who listen to us regularly know that we are humongous Star Wars fans. Um, like, absolute diehard. We will probably break down the final movie. Um, but if you've never read it, there is a series called The Jedi Knight Academy. Um, I'm actually, ta- I know there's a new, newer iteration of it, but I'm talking about the one from the 90s, late 2000, or 90s and then early 2000s, written by Kevin J. Anderson and Rebecca Moesta. Hmm. I was obsessed with these books. I have like all 13 of them and it was uh, following, which now is clearly not canon, but in my little heart will always be canon, was following um, Han and Leia's two twins as they go to Uncle Luke's Jedi Academy and get up to a bunch of shenanigans because their parents are not there. You'll see a bit of a theme there. <laughs> um, 
it has Chewie's nephew. We meet tons of folks from all of these. It was a really good like primer to get to know the worlds of Star Wars. And when I was a kid, it was just these books were magic. So obsessed with them. And then so good. So good. And then our final one is it's I apologize ahead of time out of print and I literally have paid like 40 bucks to send copies of these to my friends who are having kids. Um, there was a Catholic theologian. She was really good friends with Thomas Merton called Monica Furlong who wrote this trio of books. Um, but my favorite ones were, they're called wise child and juniper. And, um, there's people debate what order you read them in. I read Juniper first and then Wise Child and, and Cormac. Um, but Juniper takes place during the Dark Ages. Um, and Juniper is a Cornish princess who um, she's second. So even though she's the oldest daughter, her brother, um, who was just born, will inherit the throne. And they're Christian. They're, they're, uh, they're Christian and... Um, her parents decide that she can find strength somewhere else. That while their their son will be king and will find strength in being a Christian king, they actually send her to go be an apprentice for a pagan witch. And when I tell you that this is my copy is so tattered, like I don't even like I reread it maybe once a year. I tend to reread my kids' books um, like a Christmas, like a holiday tradition. <laughs> um, this book is the series. It's just the most amazing thing. And if you can find a used copy, Monica Furlong, Juniper, Wise Child, it walks you through like the training that a young girl would have received as an apprentice to like a pagan witch during the time where like Celtic paganism was still alive. And also as a, as a young girl to see and, and read that these parents were like, there are other truths and other like strengths you can find outside of here, um, was really transgressive when I was younger. Um, I mean, like I honestly credit Juniper and Wise Child with directing me towards feminist thought. So I absolutely um, love those books. So, um, I'll, I'll, you know what I'll do is, uh, John and I hadn't talked about this. I'll tweet out these books weekly, the ones that we're talking about, so that you guys um, can see them and, you know, like definitely chat us up if you pick one up and read it. So they're great. They're so good. So I think it's time to delve into <sighs> those dark materials. Yes. It's, it, it's time for the Golden Compass. Okay. So I'm, I'm so excited. I like, <laughs> can you contain yourself? I, I just can't. I'm so excited. Um, I think one of the reasons I'm so excited is this is not easy material to adapt as evidenced by the terrible film adaptation of the golden compass that came out. Um, when was it like 10 years ago? Oh yeah. It was a while ago. I think yeah. I was like in high school. It was Nicole Kidman's face was still frozen. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a while ago. Um, But one of the reasons I think this is hard material to adapt and the reason I think HBO is the putting aside our hurt John from Game of Thrones. uh, The reason I think that this was the right platform to work this out is on HBO. No one has to pretend that the themes in this book are any less stark than they are. Mm -hmm. And, Pullman is a genius 
at creating with his sentence really beautiful visuals that are very expensive to create. So you needed, um, they're, they're like paintings when you read it. Like you can see this entire world in your head, um, but it was difficult to adapt. So, so super exciting. So we, we know that this is an eight episode limited series that will cover all three of the books in, uh, in one go. So it'll cover the golden compass, the subtle knife and the amber spyglass all in eight episodes, which doesn't, uh. I know it does make me a little anxious cause that is a lot of material to cover, but also this is how British shows do shit and they do it well. And um, this was in just like a discovery of witches. I was about to say, just like Fleabag, just like that, like they don't believe in dragging shit out for the sake of dragging it out. So if they can tell this story in eight episodes, I'm excited. And this first and do it well, and do it well. And this first episode, which is in conjunction with BBC's um, uh, film, uh, I'm drawing a blank on the name, but like this wasn't done just by HBO, similar to a discovery it was by BBC. Right, BBC was involved, so um, it's in good hands. So we start off, John, in a galaxy far, far away. Right? <laughs> well, I mean, in some way, shape, or form. In some way, shape, or form. We start off in a world that is adjacent to our own. And um, this is very important for, uh, for children's lit. Uh, we see this a lot with, like, the Hunger Games, right? Like, Panem is, like reality adjacent and this world is also reality adjacent it is just similar enough to our world to remind us of our own world while simultaneously letting us know that we are somewhere else right Mm -hmm. and in this world there's something amazing and anyone who knows me and knows my love of animals will know why it's amazing humans have a uh why don't you walk us through this so that i can just wait she is literally so excited she can't talk (laughs) so basically in this world animals representation of us their soul is called demons and this is a sacred relationship that every human shares with their demon it's almost like your soul is outside of yourself um and you get to interact with it um i guess is how i used to think of it when i was a kid so um and the thing to know about these demons uh is they they change shape and are in flux until you are an adult until like you reach a certain level of maturity which i think is representative of the fact that we as humans are still growing up changing evolving until a point in which we settle into ourselves Mm -hmm. Um, Right, which I think is 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 really beautiful visually, narratively, and theologically. Um, so we 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 live in this world that's controlled by the magisterium. Uh, that is not which is an allegory for what? It's not even an allegory. The magisterium is what we call the powers that be inside the Vatican. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, y'all, we're about to go. We, <laughs> so let's break this down a little bit. So Marcy, of talk a, yeah, <laughs> let's set it up. So in understanding this book, you have to, uh, we're going to break down some Catholic theology. We're going to go into it and we're going to really be into the hierarchical structures of Catholicism in general and where people think it could go if it was unhinged, where it has been, where it hasn't been. 
all of these things, separation of church and state, all of the types of theological dictatorships that we see and talk about, um, Marcy's lived them, but we are really going to go into some of that stuff so, here because it is the biggest theme in this book. A hundred percent. So I think it's important for, for listeners to know that the Golden Compass it is rumored, not particularly rumored, pretty confirmed that it was a response to C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, um, which uphold traditional Christian Catholic teaching, right? So to see that this world uh, where we are about to meet Lyra is controlled, controlled by an organization called the Magisterium is not by, um, by chance, it's not a fancy word. It is a deliberate choice. The Magisterium is the teaching authority of the Roman Catholic Church as exercised by the Pope and or bishops. Um, and for those folks who are not Catholic, it is very difficult to explain to folks the power the magisterium has. The magisterium, if the magisterium says that the sky is green, the sky is green. The magisterium is the centralized power of Catholicism and Christianity in the world. Um, so. I would, I would say, I would venture to say, John, that this book, as we set up and world build with Philip Pullman, he sets up very early on the magisterium as the opposition. Um, so the, the world is controlled by the magisterium, though there are whispers, and there always are in children's literature, uh, from the witches up north, that there is a prophecy that a powerful child could be born and take down the magisterium. And that this child will be born during a great flood. Fast forward a couple seconds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Here's the great flood. And Mr. Tumnus himself. <laughs> uh, They're just throwing shade too, because it's like he was Mr. Tumnus in Chronicles of Narnia. A hundred percent. My God, what is his name? Now my, my brain is like blinking. McAvoy. Yes, James McAvoy. The sexiest centaur to hit... Uh, TV film um, ever, uh, he shows up to uh, Jordan College at Oxford. So we are settled somewhere that we know. Jordan College at Oxford knocks on the door. It is a flood. He is, the water is pretty much at his chest line. We can't even see his hooves. Um, I'm kidding. Uh, he's a human. Uh, knocks on the door with this child. Um, this is right after we've been let, we've been told there is a prophecy of a child who will take down the magisterium. She will come to through a great flood. Um, we know that this man is Lord Asriel. We find that out later. And Lord Asriel brings Lyra to Jordan College, hands her to a man called Dr. Carney, uh, who is also referred to as the master. Uh, he is the head of Jordan College. Um, and obviously for those folks who come from any of the Abrahamic religions, but li literally any religious tradition, the biblical flood, or a, fl a flood prophecy is pretty much in any single mythology we've got. Yep. Right. So and it's like a flood. I mean, well, yeah. I'm so, like, it's it's a. I'm, I love the landscapes. It there. It's. A, I mean, look. There's no. There's nowhere more beautiful than Oxford. So it's. I mean, it's. It's just stunning. Um, so he hands her to Doctor Carney, uh, Lord Azrael, and he requests something that he terms scholastic sanctuary that Lyra, this young child, and uh, like 
in that he needs her to be held by the master under scholastic sanctuary, which lets us know that in this world, the magisterium holds religious power and the people who need to seek sanctuary are academics. That's interesting. That's a flip from any other type of um, children's narrative, like literature narrative that includes Christian theology. So here the power is with the religious and those who need sanctuary are academics. How do you feel about that as an academic? Because I know I have strong feelings about it. Boy, I mean, like, you definitely see the breakdown between actual knowledge and the types of theological dissidents that they don't want to occur, like with the magisterium. And you can see how that power subsumes with some people. It's broken down. I mean, when you have to, it's kind of like claiming sanctuary in a religious institution where religious institutions, like when you think about how they're supposed to help the poor, the downtrodden, those individuals needing refuge and, and needing help, um, kind of like a la, you know, Quasimodo, Hunchback of Notre Dame status. Um, but the Are ways you gonna, in- you to break out into God help the outcast right now? Uh, I wish. <laughs> but I really think that you know, we we start breaking down some serious themes in the show right off the bat. Right. Like they hold nothing. Like basically they have a two minute cue card like in the beginning that says, here's this and this, like get ready. Yeah, exactly. So magisterium bad, scholastic sanctuary means that academia is safe. We know this- like 100% safe too. 100% safe. We know that uh, Lord Asriel has bought, brought a baby named Lyra, uh, her demon is with her, um, Pantalaemon, who uh, will transition in form throughout most of this show, is my guess, uh, because she is a baby and she is still changing. And the master says, no, like, you can't leave her here. Obviously, he has studied long enough to know that the flood, the baby, this means something. And he's like, I don't, I don't want shit to do with this. And uh, Lord Asriel says he has to leave her there because she is not safe. It's not safe right now. And then we fast forward to 12 years later at Jordan College. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. Like the scenes are beautiful. So we open up with scenes of Lyra and her, her buddy, Roger, on the grounds of the college. And they're so cute. Like they're, oh, like, they've been relying on each other. Uh, they're both, con- they both consider themselves orphans. They have this, am- imagine this campus as your playground, right? Um, and to get to learn from the professors there because you're an orphan and professors love to teach. Um, so um, what a beautiful, if not dark kind of playground for these two kids. And um, while they're playing, they actually head down to the crypts. Um which have you ever gone down into like an old church crypt or an old university crypt? No, because I'm not crazy. Well, I have. <laughs> uh, and they're I'm not surprised in any way. Right. I mean, I mean, every beautiful old Catholic church has crypts that you're allowed to, to go down into. Um, so what's interesting is Lyra's not afraid in there. Whereas I do get like very kind of like quiet and like, like, I'm, I don't think reverent is the right word. I just don't like being around dead people. Um, Lyra's just playing amongst the skeletons. Um, and you kind of understand that like she doesn't particularly abide by societal rules. Like she doesn't give a shit about whether or not she's supposed to be scared in here. And she definitely doesn't give about a shit about the ivory tower that is her home. No, she does because she it's normal to her. She doesn't understand where she lives. Right, right. 
and they're playing and then Lyra's like let's go get a drink and like I was like when I was watching this I was laughing because I'm like she is a good Christian because she has an alcohol problem um (laughs) at a young age at a very young age she just has this like old old bottle of wine that she's drinking from and and Roger is watching very disapprovingly because Roger is the Sam to her Frodo would you agree yes yeah, so he's like, no, like, I don't think we should drink. Like, we're just kids. Um, so um, then we transition from what I think is a really good introduction to just the landscape of of Jordan College, of Oxford, and of where Lyra is living to the north. Um, so talk to me about why we go north. We go north because this is kind of where the magisterium doesn't have quite the hold that they have on the rest of the world, as well as this is kind of where the veils between the universes, and we'll get there, folks, we'll get there, um, or worlds, or whatever you want to call them, can be broken down a la the methods that Azrael really starts to try to break down. So. Right we go north um, up there because he's looking at the Northern Lights, Azrael is. And so um, he's always looking good, Mr. Tumnus, but his daemon is a Gwendolyn Christie voiced uh, snow leopard. And you see that they're trying to really understand the science behind what Azrael's trying to do. And like, yes. Yeah. But there's, a, but there's a scientific but sci-fi lens really put on it right so he's clearly trying to figure out some stuff that he has seen up there um he's doing research um and we get kind of a a like ha i have figured something out i must go back to to oxford college and let them know what i have seen and it transitions to uh the the opening credits and i will say the opening credits are stunning they're like a mix between game of thrones and like the crown it's beautiful it's very beautiful, very Game of Thrones-esque, Thrones where I remember being like a lot of money and time and care was put into this opening. Um, so yeah, like gorgeous. So then we transition to Lyra back at school and her, her old ass professor, who's like six minutes away from dying because he's so old, um, is teaching her about um, demons and how like the like your demon can kind of sense when you have a full understanding and grasp of morality of good and evil. Um, and theologically this makes sense. We kind of become ourselves when we have what I would call a moral compass. That does not mean a religious compass, but just um, there is, it's a developmental milestone for most of us who aren't sociopaths when we figure out just right and wrong. Right. Um, I will say I have very, like damning thoughts on the fact that all of the servants in Philip Pullman's world, their demons are dogs. Um, I think that that leaves a lot to be desired about his world building. Um, There's a class narrative to that. There is a very serious class narrative. It's very derivative. I, I, it's just very disappointing. And, and I love Pullman, but I'm just, I call things as I see them. And I think it's, it's, fundamentally just problematic um but lyra lyra is having this class and she kind of voices a bit of a difference of opinion that like you know you can change as you get older and like um and the professor's like shh like you can you cannot talk like that and she's like why not i have scholastic sanctuary which is like such a like such a hilarious thing for a kid to say but like it means that like her whole life has been shaped in a space where she is free to think 
Mm-hmm. Uh, what we have to take as viewers is an understanding that that means that the opposite of her freedom is that no one on the outside world would be allowed to, to question the magisterium's teachings and authority, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the professor kind of reminds her that like, yo, like we're protected by, by scholastic sanctuary, but don't push it. Because don't push it, girl. There's things they can do um, if, 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 you, if you're out of line too much. And we know that historically, um, folks who, who pled religious sanctuary and stuff like that, you know, there were a lot of ways to go around it, like being labeled a heretic and being taken to trial is one of them. Uh, so this so- is also, can we just talk about for a second that this is also what I feel Lyra looks like. Is it? Yeah. I, really I don't know the the actress playing Lyra. I actually agree. I think um, the she is unburdened by what I'll call toxic femininity, and she would be at a university where she is surrounded by um, by men who disregard her to a certain extent, mm-hmm. right? Like she's not performing for anyone here, so she's just yeah. simply herself. Also, um, there aren't many women at that university no and we can actually compare lyra to mrs coulter in a bit to see how differently a woman needs to navigate power and femininity uh as an adult in this world um so so lyra is having this class and she sees that lord asriel her her uncle um has for some reason arrived at oxford and decides to trick her professor um, and sneak out, uh, not through a door, but through a window and climb through the roof, which is again to remind us that this place is her playground. This is her, her turf, right? Um, so the, the one thing that's kind of devastating is we get from Lyra that her whole life, she's waited for Asriel to, to just take her north, to just to call her his own. And she's like, oh, today's the day. Today's the day, and it's it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. He's not taking you north, girl. Um, we do get a an image of like a scene where the master and the professor are looking out, also having realized that Lord Azrael is there, and they're preparing for him to come in. And there's the golden compass, the um, alethiometer, is sitting on the desk, uh, which for those of us who are watching out, like the it's it's not round, which I know sounds like a small thing, but I was like, it's square, um, which was interesting. So, um, yes. So talk to me about Lord Asriel arriving at Oxford. So Lord Asriel, hot daddy, um, is coming to Oxford. And he is there because he's discovered something while he was up in the north. And it's proof. Um, this is something that we'll talk about a lot with understanding the world of theology and science or academia that we break down here. He has certifiable proof um, of what he's presenting. But our, so Dr. Carney, the master, um, when... Lyra is snooping, um, trying to get a look at her uncle, sees the master poison some wine, right? That seems a to very be, nice wine. A very nice wine that seems to be intended for Lord Asriel. So should we as viewer like that to me is like for us as viewers, it's like, wait, like who's good? Well, as you find out when you go back to 
when we're finally introduced to the magisterium, even you see that they have people on the inside. Course. And so, and the master might be good, for example, in, in theory, because all he's trying to do is protect whatever the school and everything that he's done. Sanctuary. Um, sanctuary, because he knows how quickly it can be taken away. Right. And so Lord Azrael comes in and the master's like, here's your favorite wine. And he's like, yeah, I'm good. Which means he senses that there's danger in the room as well. No, he's about to drink it. But he puts it down, right? No, because Lyra smacks it out of his hand. Oh, you're right. You're right. This is the different versions that live in my head. Yeah. You have this this version. So for people listening, this version is much more accurately tied to the books right. um, and not the old movie. So he actually goes and tries to drink it. Lyra is the one that saves him in the She's end. outside on the window, the master the room, and she jumps in. And protects him from the poison wine. Yeah. Hoping that he would be impressed with this. Right? Because she's like, look, I've saved the day. It's time for us to go north. Um, And while I do think he kind of softens up around her, which I think is beautiful acting by McAvoy, because I've seen Lord Asriel played extremely, like, cold. And there's still, like, the written softness that I think Pullman was able to get very nuanced. Um, He's clearly, like, his brain is elsewhere. Um, and so he's kind of a bit dismissive of Lyra being like, it's time for us to go north. I love you, like whatever. But he does say to her, hey, I need you to spy on people here at Oxford. And like, I need you to listen to see if anyone mentions something, anything about dust. And look, as a kid, I remember reading this and being like, like dust? Yeah. Like, what do you mean Dust. And Lyra's a kid, and she's like, I, what do you mean, Dust? Like, I don't understand. But before Azrael can explain it to her, they all come back in the room, so he shoves her into a wardrobe and then and then proceeds to do his academic presentation of his findings while letting Lyra get the information she needs while she's in there, right? So we find out that Lord Azrael was supposed to go up north for the King of Laplin and however, like his real aim really was to follow what happened to a certain Dr. Grunman's expedition. Like there was a, a, another professor who had gone on an expedition North who had disappeared. He'd gone missing. So while Azrael was like, Oh, I'm up North doing, you know, the usual Northern stuff, whatever that is. He was actually trying to figure out what happened to this other um, researcher. And then he declares that he's found evidence of something called dust. Um, and it is literally dust. It, Dust-esque. I would call it more like life glitter. <laughs> life glitter. Life glitter is a good way to put it. Um, so he's been taking these photographs with this very specific filter that my guess is his invention. So when he takes photographs, you, you can see around the humans um, this like presence of like dust. Um, like matter. Uh, And I would say theologically, like proof of some sort of like existence surrounding the human body. Uh, Something we like dust is kind of the numinous, like you, we can't explain it. What is interesting is in the same picture he took with an adult, there is a child. The dust is not attracted to the child at all. It exclusively surrounds adults. Um, mm-hmm. but clearly it's corruption 
<laughs> the, yep. I'm being sarcastic, but like really, honestly, like we should be thinking from a theological perspective, these adults become clouded, whereas children are not. Yeah, um, children still see it. Yes, he has proof of this. And dust is obviously, the existence of dust and whatever that means is obviously a threat to the magisterium or we wouldn't be having some secret academic meeting about it. In like the dark where everyone's really worried about who's listening. Right, without even checking the wardrobe to make sure that a little kid didn't sneak in to listen. Mm -hmm. Um, So he shows them the Northern Lights then, um, which we had seen him, you had said like, the Northern Lights were very spectacular when he was looking at them up North. When he put his filter on it, what you see in the Northern Lights is a city in the sky. A parallel world. A myriad, this, the, this sentence always gets to me. A myriad of worlds of which the Magisterium only controls one. One. Um, so we are, this is obviously like much more complicated theology and sci-fi than like Harry Potter and or. Or if you are watching Man in the High Castle, it yes, is yes, yes. tied into that type of ideology of why the Nazis. And if you're, if you randomly fast forwarded on this podcast and you're here to talk about his dark materials and all of a sudden you just heard the word Nazis, I'm so sorry, but the type of multi-world, multiverse narrative that they approach in that show as well where these controlling there's also quite a bit of like Stephen Hawking in here there's a lot of astrophysics um but we're talking about he is convinced he has found proof of parallel worlds existences um and proof that there are worlds out there that the magisterium does not have control over Mm -hmm. Um, and so here we are to understand dust as maybe the fundamentals of existence right? Um, Parallel worlds, multiple worlds, whatever you want to call it. Um, It's in a lot of science fiction. uh, And obviously we will get much more into that. Um, So Asriel implies that Dr. Grumman's expedition was punished for figuring this this shit out. Um, And you'd think that's enough, but Lord Asriel is dramatic as fuck and pulls out Dr. Grumman's head that's frozen to be like, look, he was fucking killed. I'm not even going to give you guys a chance to be like, let me gaslight you about this. He's like, here's his head. Yeah, here it is. Right? So we're in danger, yo. This is what's at stake. We in danger, girl. We in danger. The Magisterian is trying to silence people studying the origins of existence, world's dust. And this person was very well respected by the members of the college too, which is what something Lord Azrael talks about. And there, and our understanding is there would be no reason for, like, it is unthinkable, obviously this is why secret meeting, that the magisterium would punish someone for, for searching out answers on our existence. You would think that religion would want to push the boundaries of understanding, but in a real world, of course they don't because it's about power. Mm-hmm. If there is other truth out there, the magisterium would have to admit that there were things they did not know. Or control. Or things that they did not control and or did not want us to know. Which is the whole point of the Catholic Church, a.k.a. the Magisterium. Exactly. Or religion in general. I would say I would say religion in general, but this is a direct dig at the Catholic Church and the Christian Church, Episcopal Church. Um, Any hierarchical system of religion and dominance. Yes. So we move on from here to uh, a local village of Egyptians... <laughs> who are 
it, it's as bad as it sounds. I mean, it is definitely alluding to like a traveler type community, uh, like a poor community. But we get to see this beautiful kind of religious ceremony where uh, one of the 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 young men, um, Tony Costa, has become like a an adult, and his um, his demon has settled into. I think he was a hawk, right? Yeah. Right. And so the whole community celebrates. They present a ring to the child to acknowledge that he's now transitioned from child or man. There's a beautiful note that the entire village donated communal silver to create that ring. Um, and that now the boy and his demon commit faithfully to protect the community as adults. Mm-hmm. His mother is very proud. We know her as Ma Costa. Mm-hmm. And then who gets lost like right after this? Oh my God. Well, um, basically the boy here, um, Tony and his mother, Ma Costa, um, basically have a little another boy um named billy costa and his demon which is so cute by the way um and they are up above not anywhere near the party so like girl i'm not saying you deserved it but like what are you doing walking around in the dark like by yourself he's a little kid he's a little kid i know and having adventures i know but the world is a dark place child the world is a dark place and the gyptians have had rumors for a very long time of something called gobblers. Gobblers? Gobblers? Bunch of gobblers. So gobblers is this urban myth that there's someone stealing children in the surrounding area. Here's the thing. Billy and his demon are, are walking. His demon's like a little like white ferret mouse. And a fox demon appears, but I don't see a human attached to it. And then they take Billy. So we know Billy is actually snatched, mm-hmm. which anyone who knows my love of murder podcast knows my biggest fear is being snatched. So um, so here, again, they're not pulling punches. Um, children, we now know that we live in a world where children are going missing. Uh, and we need to keep that very present as we move. For a specific purpose. For a very specific purpose, um, and the children go missing at a at an age where their demons are still transitioning. So, back at Oxford, Lyra fell asleep during this academic meeting, as most of us do. Yeah, I um, mean, same girl. Same girl. If you put me in a room with 30, 30 men talking about their research, I'm I'm going to fall asleep. Uh, so Lord Asriel takes her out of the wardrobe when everyone's off the room and everyone's agreed to fund his research, takes her upstairs, and it's kind of devastating because when he lays her down in this little bed, her entire wall is dedicated to the north. And it's heartbreaking because, like, that's supposed to, again, give us a sign that, like, all she wants is to a family. Like, she just wants a family. She wants Lord Asriel to, to take her north, to be with her, for her to not be some orphan stuck at Jordan College. Like, um, and she wakes up when he puts her down on the bed and she looks at him and she's like, so can I still trust the master? Because she saw him try to, what we can assume is poison, you know, her uncle. Well, it's the childlike innocence that is still there. I know. And he, and he, he tells her something that um, we should keep in mind for the rest of the series, which is do not trust anyone. <laughs> 
I do no, and he says, I do not trust anyone. I don't trust anyone. Lord Asriel is exactly who he is. Like we always like to look at I'm redemption arcs. Yeah. Like this is a small spoiler. You get what you see. He is who he is. Yeah. Um right. So he um he pretty yeah, he pretty much is like, I don't trust anyone. Um, he's, he's, again, there's a certain nuance to the way he's acting with Lyra that implies warmth, but it's just not enough. Um, we then get a scene change back to, to Dr. Carney, the master. Um, he and the other professor are looking at the alethiometer, which is the golden compass. You will learn a lot more about this as this comes across. And he says that the alethiometer is showing signs of danger. Um, and Danger, Will Robinson. Danger! Uh, and there's an insinuation here that the master, the professor, they perfectly well knew that Dr. Grunman had been shut up, which is to give us a heads up, like you said, that there could be some cross, uh, contamination of the magisterium, even inside of the walls of this academic institution. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then they talk a little bit about the prophecy, but not, like it's not directly saying Lyra's the prophecy, but they say that the alethiometer is saying that Lyra needs to make a great journey and that it predicts that she will betray someone. Because first it said, and there will be a great betrayal, and the professor clarifies, no, she will betray someone. Yeah. And that they should be scared of her and for her. And, like, I think that's a very interesting line from two grown-ass fucking men who are, like, because that implies an and-or, which is the opposite of religious truth, which is that they can simultaneously be very scared of her, but also want to protect her. They're not afraid of that gray in between. Um, And I think, as viewers, this gives us the heads up that Lyra is the one that was foretold, um, and that... Even these men, these powerful men, are a little bit afraid, right? Yeah, they are. They're afraid of a little girl. For I mean, that is a bigger theme of what we will discuss about throughout this whole show and the book series um, that relates to it, but they're terrified of the potential of this girl. Right. So then uh, Roger, it's, the, like, it's like the next morning, and Roger brings Lyra breakfast, and they have the like this cute discussion where she's like, yo, do you know what dust is? And he's like, nah, never heard of it. And then Roger's like, you ever heard of gobblers? And Lyra's like, that's an urban myth. Give me my eggs. Um, and so then Roger's like, by the way, your uncle's leaving. And she literally drops everything to run after Lord Asriel. Mm-hmm. Like everything. And she pretty much is like, please, like, t-. he's in like this Zeppelin. Uh, this like, that's the only word I know for it. I know there's more words for it. Yeah. That's like a big plane thing. Air balloon hot. Air, air balloon. balloon. It's also in like my, uh, one of my favorite shows, the fringe. Um, what else is it? It's in a bunch of other shows that they use. It's a different type of modern air travel. Um, that Again, it, it shows that technology is different in this world. It's not the same, but she begs him to take her. He says, no, He says he doesn't have the time for her now, which is such a cruel statement, but it's also, like you said, it's true. He's like, I don't have the time to to take care of you right now, and the North is no place for a child. And she's really hurt, 
right? And um, and she's like, is this even like the one my parents died in? And he gives her a small kindness and says, no, it, this your parents was much smaller, implying like I'm safe. So that is a kindness to to Lyra because clearly her parents must have died in one of these. Um, and she she's devastated by his reaction and just kind of leaves. And then Roger, as everyone's best friend, yells at Lord Asriel, like, she's way better than you think she is, and she's special, and, like, don't treat her like this. And, like, high five for Roger being, like, the best friend that we all need and want. Um, but Lord Asriel replies really interesting to Roger. He doesn't reply to the call out that he's rejecting Lyra. He goes, everyone is special. Okay, this is really important when thinking about Catholic theology and Christian theology that they're chosen one, that there is like, there are like in, in Catholicism, like you need a dick to preach the gospel, right? You need a dick to change bread uh, like into the body of Christ or wine into blood. And the fact that we have a character that's like, no, everyone special is directly tied to critique that that the magisterium would hold the power to say what is special Mm -hmm. does that make sense yep right so so then we head back to the village and everyone's congregating and they're looking for billy they're looking for billy for billy because the gobblers took him um and not because it was his fault, like you said. <laughs> First of all, okay, it wasn't his fault, but he was literally walking around like a weirdo in like the middle of night. <laughs> like he wasn't like his literal whole village was in like that weird building. And like, he's like, you know, I'm going to go hang out here by like the rocks near the woods and not get kidnapped. I mean, it just is weird. I'll pro- I'll, I mean, like, sorry. I stand with all victims of people this, who have kidnapped. This is I- your, this is your fundamental survival technique. Like, every time you're like, I don't understand why you do Halloween horror nights. You don't have to be scared if you don't want to be. Exactly. This, this is like literally you being like, kid, you didn't have to be alone if you didn't want yeah. to be. Like, I, hey, I, like, you want to go skydiving? No, I'm good. No. This is, guys, this is every version of John. No version of John as a child would have been by himself in a corner, dark, while everyone's throwing a party. This is really what's happening right here. Uh, (laughs) So the village has come together and have the, one of the village elders is like, the gobblers are real. It's not a rumor. They're taking our children at alarming rates with their demons. Um, so, So Roger knew what was up. Roger knew. It was, it was, which if Roger's thing was true, maybe Lyra's dust is real as well. Right. Yeah. So Lyra is pissed off at her uncle. Like most kids are when you get left behind and she's like, fuck you. I will go North by myself with or without you. I'm gonna go with Roger. And Roger's like, wait, I'm not Roger's like you. Roger's like, I don't need no danger. <laughs> he's like, no. Oh God. Oh God. Oh God. But he will, he will still go with her cause he's faithful to a fault. Right. He is Sam. He is, he is really Sam. Um, so they begin planning for this adventure north. Um, and then we transition to inside the Magisterium, which kind of looks like the Men in Black building. 
Oh my god, yeah. It's I mean, but the the they do great jobs of world building. Oh, it's stunning. I mean, like, look, I'm being sarcastic when I say it looks like the Men in Black studio, but it is extremely big, open, white light, black color. Like, I never that, thought it was that big in the books, the building that they're walking in, but me, I don't know why. It looked like the um the like arena parthenon that um palpatine like yes well the galactic empire the galactic empire yeah it was i mean like it's big but then uh, of course it is but there's also that big building in man in the high castle that the nazis are all were in at the end of season two do you remember that so it's i know that there's a specific name for that building because they took it off of like architecture like the third reich was trying to build Anywho, we'll talk about that next episode. And the architecture is meant to be imposing. It's meant to it's meant to convey a sense grand, of larger than life. Yeah. Right, right. So we come up uh, to this priest and this this man who are talking about Azrael. They know that he's looking at dust. They're not particularly worried that he can see the dust. They're concerned he can see through it. So my, my understanding of that is they're more concerned about the parallel world part than the fact that he can see dust, right? Yep. So um, if, you, if you pay attention during that scene, the, the man who is in what is an adapted priest's cassock is referred to as father. Um, his name is uh, Father Packville, and then the other man is Lord Boreal. Um, they're the ones who are discussing Asriel. And so this is meant to mimic Catholic garb. Um, and then they say, what's interesting is they're talking about Azrael and they're like, we just can't tell her about it. Yes. And then we enter into the HB Asi herself, Mrs. Coulter, played by the fabulous Ruth Wilson, who actually gives us face that moves during this up during this whole character. Mrs. Coulter is one of the major characters in this entire series, um, and her monkey demon, um, who always gave me the heebie-jeebies, but whatever. Um, and she walks into this first scene as a woman who knows her own power and knows how to navigate amongst this power of men. And she comes to Jordan College to meet Lyra, and she walks up in like this really like great sw- like swagger and like all callously, and you know, wearing like, velvet, which everyone knows. Color. Yeah, she's just sitting there like ready to give it. And so she comes up, it's dinner time, and she's there to really, you know, try to get Lyra. Right. She she's says, interested in Lyra. Right. She says that um, the master has asked her to to find a place for Lyra. And I'm like, a place in what, girl? Like in your political campaign and you're like, in your convent, like what? First off, how do you have power inside the magisterium? Why are they afraid of you? Why can you wear velvet so beautifully? But honestly, like why? Like what? It, this, as a viewer, I'm guessing was confusing to folks who were watching. Um, she has been called by the master to pretty much take Lyra on as an apprentice underneath her. She says, I need an assistant type thing. Um, and she's like, we'll even go to London. And Lyra's eyes light up. She has the trauma of having been rejected by um, Lord Asriel. So she's like, yeah, I'll go, but I have to bring Roger. Because like, Roger's like my best friend. Like, that's my ride or die. And like, I can't leave Roger behind. It's like me if I got to go to like something really exciting, like Marcy, like yeah. you ride or die. Like she got to come. Can I get a plus one? Can I get a plus one? Thank you. 
technically plus two because I'm gonna bring my Pomeranian in. Um, so Miss Coulter, like Mrs. Coulter's like, you know what? Sure, bring Roger. That, that's that's just shady. Just short, and it, it was like a very dismissive short. Uh, uh, so when Lyra goes back to her room, um, Pinta Layman, her her de- her demon, which by the way they talk to them. Um, I, should we haven't mentioned that at all in this episode. They have conversations. They have demons conversations. talk to humans. Humans talk to demons. They kind of guide each other in a lot of it's ways. Like magic. Like if I could talk to my Pomeranian and my Pomeranian could talk back, I don't need anyone else in this world. Um, Marcy, for the graphic of our series for our, our show breakdown of his dark materials, what is your demon? <laughs> Why don't we start with yours, which is less embarrassing? Mine's a rabbit. Why? <laughs> I forgot. Is it because it's a lot? Because like, that's all I got. That's all you got? No, because rabbits are like always going. They are always going. And you are. And like, they multiply like rabbits. So I'm just like. Exactly. I was going to say, if, for folks who don't know John, John uh, does political and uh, grassroots work um, on the ground. He works uh, for women's rights on the ground. This man doesn't sleep. So the rabbit makes a hundred percent sense. For me. I wanted a whale. You did want a whale, which I also couldn't figure out <laughs> why. But also I love whales. They're majestic. They're also communal. Um, they're communal. They hold the world's secrets. And in Star Trek The Voyage Home, they save the world. Yeah, no, I that's I, I honestly, like, I made fun of you so much when we were creating the image for this podcast because I was like, what do you want on there? And you were like, a whale. And I was like, what? And then you were like, a rabbit. And I was like, this Two is- Two very like, different animals. Very different, different sizes. Um, but what's interesting is um, the, the way in which we feel represented and how beautiful the imagery of these demons and how we, we would be dependent on them, how they would befriend- they would be, they would be of us, but not, which is also a very theologically like contested kind of like, um, I think of like God, like God, the father, Jesus, Holy spirit, like are the same, but aren't the same. Like that demon is a part of me, but it is not, it it exists outside of me. Um, so I want, like, I want to say, like, I'm very respectful of your choices, John. I think they're wonderful. Um, I do, uh, (laughs) I'm sorry that I thought yours just meant you like to fuck a lot. <laughs> I mean, I mean, in a perfect world. In a perfect world. Um, <laughs> if you look at our pop culture theologians icon for this um, this show, you will see that mine is a goat. <laughs> uh, you can't. Why is that, Marcy? You can't see it, but it's a black goat. Um, it's actually Black Philip from The Witch. which is one of my favorite films uh if you haven't seen it i cannot i i honestly i cannot i only watched it because of you i have a very also a film that that delves into women's liberation inside religious that movie is so messed up it's It's not even funny that's beautiful but yes and i had to catch i won't spoil it anywho please go watch it but yes i am my demon would be a black goat uh I kept going back and forth with the fox because of my love of Pomeranians and dogs and uh, specifically Spitz dogs with these long snouts and stuff. But at heart, I am the black goat that will bring down the church. And we've known that for a very long time. So 
uh, but getting back to demons, uh, Pantalaemon is like telling Lyra, like, dude, I don't think Roger's the type of person who goes on an adventure. Like, yeah. maybe, like maybe you need to look at your best friend who you love a little closer, which is kind of like what Brent would say to me if I said, John, you're going to Halloween Horror Nights, like suck it up, right? Um, like know your know your people, like know your people. But to to Lyra, this is her family. She's going to take Roger. Um, and we get this panning out back to the village, um, and the village is still reeling from the loss of Billy. And I want to say that I think it's beautiful that the show focuses on the loss of one child this whole episode, because that one child means everything to that community. Like, it, I've seen other takes on this where um, it's like children just keep going missing throughout this whole kind of intro. And here, it's the building that the Egyptians, every child is sacred, every community member is sacred, and not one is left behind, you know? For those of us watching, um, we should all be raising our eyebrows and hands in alarm for Roger. Ooh, girl. Because Roger was the first one to bring up the gobblers. The and gobblers. Roger- Bliss. Um, oh my god, <laughs> this is the time where I plug. If you want to hear more crazy accents, go watch Love Island UK. Um, but oh, I need to download those for my flight tonight. Yes, you do, so that you can be a real friend to me. And if you can't be scared with me, just laugh with me, please. Um, but yes, we should be definitely worried about Roger. Um, Lyra is uh, a day has passed and she's woken up. Uh, by the professor, not Roger, who we know usually brings her 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 British breakfast. Yeah, like he she gets a great breakfast. Dude, I was hungry that whole episode, and Brent just made us go vegan. So like, not you're going us. vegan? Not made us, guys. Like I'm not like a prisoner in some ivory tower. I have made Brent try every crazy fad diet that's ever existed, from vegan when we lived in California all the way to keto. Um, but. I left him alone for a couple of days and he watched a ton of documentaries and he was like, can we please do this? And honestly, um, it's, it's, it feels like it might be the right time and place. I, Speaking I of things that we do for love, Marcy, what season of Love Island am I supposed to watch? You are supposed to watch number five and number two. Season start, five and season two. Yeah, start with two. Got it. Start with two. Um, but yeah, the things we do for love, but also the things we do for sustainability and for the generations that will come behind us. So I'm not, I'm not on some platform to be like, everyone should be vegan. Cause I'm going to suck at it. I'm I have been trying to become a vegetarian. We've spoken right. about this before, but yeah. Like, like, look, I love going okay boomer and I can't go okay boomer if I'm still a part of the problem. So, um, I'm not a boomer. Like, I'm not fuck you boomers. Uh, I'm just saying like, I want to be an ally to the kids younger than me that will feel um, climate change even quicker than I will. And I love my animals and my demons. So, so yeah, no, no, no platform. Do you, uh, I'm going to try to help Brent do, do Brent. So back to the alethiometer, <laughs> back to the alethiometer. So, uh, Dr. Carney wants to speak to Lyra. Uh, we should immediately note, like we were saying that the breakfast is missing. Roger's missing. Where's Roger? Um, she goes to, to their office. Um, and they're, they're like, here, we want to give you this alethiometer. And it's like, first off, she doesn't even know how to spell that. What is it? Someone Does explain. anyone know how to spell it? I know. I honestly think there's 800 spellings of alethiometer uh, in this document that we're reading with. Um, so what's interesting is they tell her, uh, we think this will help you on this journey that you're going on with Mrs. Coulter. And it's illegal. Uh, your uncle brought it to us. And it helps you to know the truth. 
And her reaction, I think because she's still hurt from Azrael's rejection is, I don't fucking want it. If it was my uncle's, he wouldn't want me to have it. Like, but then she says, I also don't want to take part in something that has to do with secrets. And that is the purity of a child, right? He does not in that moment sense like, oh, this is a thing of power. She's like, "Uh uh-uh. Like, I no. She goes, I'm good. And like, they're like, no, 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 you really need to take it. Um, and then when she's like, how do you even use it? They're like, they Dumbledore the shit out of her. And they're like, have fun, kid. Figure it out. Which yeah. Is- yeah. <laughs> Wait. And there's your first Harry Potter reference. Shockingly enough, really late into the episode. Take a drink. Um, no, I mean, it's like, it's like when Dumbledore gives Ron the, the little the light clicker. Right. And he's like, have, like, you couldn't leave instructions for these fuckers, Dumbledore. Like, really? Really? Like, let's just all have like an adventure. Um, it's similar to Tolkien with the, with the eagles. We could have just sent the ring with the fucking eagles, but no, let's just go on an adventure. Um, yeah. So they're like, no, no, we, we won't show you how to use it. And we know they know how to use it because they had used it earlier in this episode to tell the truth about something. So, um, so Lyra's just handed this thing that she can't spell or all she knows about it is it's supposed to tell the truth. So here's her first chance to use it. She, she senses something's wrong. Like Roger is missing. Where is he? Um, we also know that we saw the last time we saw Roger was in a very quick, quick scene change. His demon was interacting with the same Fox demon that Billy's demon was interacting with. Mm -hmm. We already know like, yo, the gobblers have them. The gobblers, my God, the gobblers, anyone British. I'm so sorry. Like we're sorry. We're so sorry. Please listen to us. Just be thankful I'm not trying to do my Low Island accents because I I honestly think I've like hurt Brent's ears. Um, But it's all all out of a deep, deep, deep love. Um, So Lyra is looking for him everywhere. She goes down to the crypts even. And we know that Roger was like, I don't fuck with the crypts, but I'll follow you because you're my friend. Um, she, She just knows in her bones that something's wrong. So she goes and she tells Mrs. Coulter like, Roger's missing. And I think the gobblers have him. And she's kind of like, um, yeah, okay, whatever. Sit down. Um, honestly, like, just sit down and be quiet. Uh, and that moment, Lyra, I think, has that, like, inside realization of, like, you can't trust anyone. And that is the first moment that she doesn't trust uh, Mrs. Coulter. Because that's not a normal reaction to a child going missing, right? Mm-mm. So then she does Mm-mm. the cutest thing. She whispers at the lithiometer to tell her what happened to Roger. Tell and, me what happened. Please, please, alethiometer, please tell me. And like, that's not how it works. And no one left her an instruction manual and she can't call Best Buy to be like, yo, what's up with this alethiometer? <laughs> um, this alethiometer is like not working and I totally <laughs> forgot my receipt. It's, yeah. And so she's kind of having this like moment where she's like, maybe I should just wait and like try to find Roger. But she she's and remember what's different in this world than ours is she has her demon to talk to so she's talking with pantalamian uh and saying like i've i don't know like maybe i should stay but honestly maybe i should go with mrs culture because like maybe there's a better chance with her and where we're going that i can help roger and find him because what yes but what you see here is she makes a choice and i want to keep stressing lyra's choices she does make a choice. She makes the choice to go with Mrs. Coulter. She makes the choice um, to 
take the alethiometer, right? Like nothing is happening without her consent, which I think is important um, for now. Um, so as they're on this train ride, um, she's looking out the window and she sees the Egyptians um, in, in what is an imagery that's supposed to remind us of, of what I'm going to say is travelers in caravans. They're on the river. Uh, and they're in the air. And in the air, the whole community is leaving for London to look for Billy, right? And so Lyra, in a sense, is on this journey with them. But this is a class conversation, though, as well. It's a parallel journey. While she is riding first class, virgin, air, train. Which no longer exists. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Um, the travelers are traveling very, the, the Egyptians are traveling very differently, but with the same, there's these, it's this parallel search for a loved one, which um, is a parallel search that can often lead folks to the magisterium, lead us to religion. Like the loss of someone, we've talked about this in so many of our podcasts, loss is a major indicator for the ability to kind of seek out religiosity Mm -hmm. it's a catalyst it is a catalyst so we should be a little bit worried about lyra who is clearly going into uh she's she's about to enter the mouth of the dragon right innocently right and the final shot of this entire episode is fucking roger is somewhere in a cage he's like let me out um with his like with his little face pressed up against the cage uh his poor little face. He's so cute. This is exactly how I pictured Roger, too. Agreed. And end scene. End episode. End episode. It's okay. so good. The great first episode. For everyone who was expecting Lin-Manuel Miranda to show up in this first episode. He ain't going to be here till a while. It's going to take a while. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's coming. So thank you for joining us for this first episode. Oh, my God. It's so good. It is so good. Uh, We will see you next week. Bye. Bye, everyone.